Hello, welcome to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Here you will find cutting-edge information provided by the best experts in the world so you can learn how to burn fat for the rest of your life. Bruno de Gama is the Brazilian Health Nut in a mission to solve the problems you have when trying to lose weight forever. He is a nutritional therapy practitioner, a certified personal trainer, and a holistic lifestyle coach by the Czech Institute. Don't forget to say hello and sign up to our free newsletter at www.brazilianhealthnet.com. Let's go. All right. Thank you so much for being here with me, Nikki. I super appreciate your time. Can you tell a little bit about your story first? Yeah. So I guess uh, first and foremost, um, as you know, I'm a chiropractor and I specialize in functional medicine here in North Carolina. Um, I'm also, mm -hmm. like you, a nutritional therapy practitioner, and I finished that certification this past year in 2015. Um, I primarily work with people who have autoimmune diseases and gastrointestinal upset. Those tend to be the two groups that, that flock to me in droves, although I do see my fair share of hormonal imbalances, thyroid disease, um, things of that nature. Um, initially, I got into this line of work years ago because I went to a presentation, actually, that spoke a lot about gluten, and mm -hmm. it was about gluten, the thyroid, and the immune system. And I remember sitting there listening to Datis Karazian speak about this topic, and I thought, oh my gosh, it's my mom. This whole story mm. sounds like my mother. She has been hypothyroid since I was born, pretty much. So the better part of 30 years. And she's been on Synthroid or Levothyroxine. And she still has hypothyroid symptoms. She still has brain fog and constipation and skin problems and all of these things that we normally attribute to the thyroid. But she's on thyroid medication. Why is that? Mm -hmm. And yeah. I started learning about you know, if you don't treat the underlying immune imbalance in a Hashimoto's case, in this case, then that person's still going to be inflamed and they're still going to have a lot of symptoms. Um, that's how it all started for me was just, you know, it, it was baby steps. First, I got her to go off gluten and I got her tested and then mm -hmm. gradually, you know, got her to actually give up dairy, which was another trigger for her. And then I started down the road of trying to improve my own health. And then it turned into hey, why don't I do this for a living? There's certainly mm -hmm. a lot of people who need this kind of work. Um, and then here I am, five, six years later. So that was five years late, uh, ago? Yeah, probably actually closer to six now that I think about mm -hmm. it. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, awesome. We're going to be talking about inflammation and gluten, especially especially gluten. We're going to be talking a lot. But before, what's a chiropractor does exactly? Like, I don't, I'm not really familiarized with uh, your work. Okay. Um, yeah, so I guess the chiropractic side of what I do, that's initially how I got into just holistic medicine in general. Um, typically chiropractors are best known for the chiropractic adjustments. So the mm -hmm. quote unquote back cracking, if you will. So getting your neck cracked or your back adjusted. Um, we usually don't call it cracking, but adjusting because it's a little bit more finesseful than that. Um, and that that alone can help a lot of different conditions, but especially we're well known for treating pain. So headaches, neck pain, back pain, um, 
and you know knee pain by keeping the spine in line and making sure that your joints are functioning optimally and mm. giving appropriate feedback to your brain and keeping your brain healthy via the chiropractic adjustment. So is it primarily like the anatomy of your health? Because I remember uh, when we were studying together, there was one subject was kind of like this. Your anatomy influences your, your physiology as well as the physiology influences mm -hmm. ana anatomy, right? Yeah. So it's kind of like a, the anatomy part of the, the health? Yeah, we're pretty well versed in anatomy. You know, we've taken our fair share of, of dissection courses at anatomy and really get to know the human body. Um, and again, like I said, you know, even from the standpoint of keeping your joints functioning optimally and moving through their full range of motion throughout your lifetime, that in and of itself is tremendously important. But also every single thing that you do in your life is ultimately stimulation for your brain. And that could even be another podcast for us to go over sometime is the concept that it, you know, hearing my voice right now, seeing whatever you see on your computer screen, you know, whether you're you're walking, getting an adjustment, drinking some water, your brain is perceiving all of that. So chiropractic adjustments can also be a really interesting way to stimulate the brain and give your nervous system new information and new feedback. And then, of course, your brain and your nervous system will respond and change your physiology. Um, so that's also mm -hmm. a really interesting topic is kind of looking at the world through the lens of neurology and what it's doing to the brain and then what your brain is doing in response. I'm in Brazil right now and I was talking to my mom and she actually went to a chiropractor uh, like three months ago. She had a problem on her leg. She could mm -hmm. not really move. And she went there and she was super happy. The guy was actually from the USA. So mm -hmm. and was she was really happy about it. So let's talk about inflammation. What is an inflammatory disease and how can this start it and just take us from, from there? Well, that's a, a big open-ended question. So hopefully I don't go off on too many tangents on you. <laughs> but inflammatory disease, really, that could encompass almost anything nowadays. If you think about it, most people probably would say cancer is an inflammatory disease. Um, heart disease, stroke, certainly autoimmune diseases, anything gastrointestinal. And inflammation just means that there is a source of free radicals or damage essentially in the body um, that hasn't been repaired. So whether whether the inflammation started from something as simple as an ankle sprain years ago, like I have a patient right now that that seems to have maybe been part of his story. Um, he had an ankle sprain 20, 25 years ago that never seemed to fully heal and resolve. And it's just perpetuated itself into this inflammatory mess for years um, to even, you know, maybe the ingestion of gluten, as we'll talk about down the road at this yeah. podcast, um, even something like a head injury or a concussion can start the cascade of inflammation. And if your body isn't able to cope with that appropriately, then it can turn into a chronic inflammatory condition. And I think that's going to be one of the takeaways I want to make a point of mentioning here is that inflammation actually isn't bad. A lot of times mm -hmm. in, you know, there's blog posts and articles, there's everything out on the internet about how to decrease inflammation. And they kind of paint inflammation as the bad guy. And that's not actually the case at all. The problem is too much inflammation or inflammation right. that your body can no longer control. But 
if I go out tomorrow and I sprain my wrist, I want it to swell and I want new white blood cells to make their way to the area. I want all of the things that are associated with an inflammatory response to happen. But then mm-hmm. ideally, once that wrist is healed, I want it to go away. And that's the key yeah. is that a lot of people lack the vitamins and nutrients and stimuli in their body to use the inflammation and then be done with it and get rid of it and go back to a normal resting state. Um, yeah. And I think that yeah, I wasn't I was at the beach yesterday and I just I kicked the, like a rock on the floor was so bad on my I almost broke my one of my toes I guess and it's kind of like inflamed now so my body's like recovering. The problem, like you said, is when you're not in balance, we have too much yeah. inflammation. What what are the main causes of inflammation nowadays in our in our health? Um, I think that a lot of inflammation is probably perpetuated by two broad things. A is the lack of certain vitamins, minerals, or nutrients. So a big one that's talked about these days is the ratio of omega-3s and omega-6s in the blood. If you don't have enough anti-inflammatory omega-3s to resolve that inflammation, um, then you're just going to get stuck in a what we would call a wind-up, um, an inflammatory loop that just feeds back on itself and keeps going and going like the Energizer bunny. Um, so something like omega threes and omega sixes or a deficiency in say vitamin D or a B vitamin, um, really any nutrient deficiency could do it. Um, and I think the other thing too, and it might be a little bit less so in Brazil for you is we are just bombarded by all kinds of inflammatory crap in the world. You know, we have never been exposed to so much pollution and chemical cleaners and flavor retardants in furniture, at least here in the United States, we have flavor retardants in our furniture. Um, You know, you go, you walk into a mall and you're sprayed by 500 Macy's representatives wanting to give you perfume. And, you know, there's just Mm. so many chemicals that we're bombarded with these days, not to mention Roundup, glyphosate. Um, it's just yeah. it's Bra- Brazil is pretty much the same to be honest with you. I was doing it? some research for the uh, unfortunately for the Brazilian market here, and we are actually the place where we mo- mostly consume Roundup, like a oh. chemical, yeah, like in a spray in our mm-hmm. vegetables, especially in fruits. It's really, really not good. So yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really crazy. I think everywhere it's pretty much getting the American culture kind of thing on the on the bad side, yeah. right? <laughs> and, so people, I mean, like they're listening right now and especially for weight loss. So can be inflammation one of the causes of obesity? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, in several different ways, but I always joke with my patients that if inflammation is involved or the immune system is involved, all hats are off because it impacts every tissue in the body right down from, you know, your brain to your bones. Everything is susceptible to inflammation. Um Oftentimes, chronic inflammation will throw off hormones, and hormones oftentimes are intimately linked with uh, weight gain and obesity. So your body might try to compensate for the inflammation by elevating, say, cortisol, and that'll cause you to gain weight. Um, Or insulin. Insulin is a big one with weight gain. Um, Even estrogen, testosterone, the sex hormones are really intimately linked with metabolism. So A, I think oftentimes what happens is that your body tries to cope with the inflammation the best that it can. And one of the ways it does so is messing with your hormones. Um, 
and reacting. So that's one big driving force. The other thing is that if you can't detoxify something out of your system and your liver becomes compromised and sluggish and you're storing these toxins, let's say Roundup, or let's say some of the you know flame retardants that we're exposed to, if you can't get rid of it, your body has to do something with it. You can't just let that stuff float around in your bloodstream all day long because it's toxic. So one of the favorite places that we store uh, dangerous toxins is in adipose tissue, in your fat. Right. So right. if you're constantly laying down all of these toxins in your fat, there's a theory that, you know how normally when people start to lose weight, they'll lose like five or 10 pounds with no problem. And then they start to hit a plateau somewhere along the line. One mm -hmm. of the theories for that plateau is that you're releasing too many fat-soluble toxins from storage in your adipose. And your body kind of puts the kibosh on that and says, whoa, 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 we, can, we don't have the systems in place to handle all this junk. We need to keep it in the fat where, where it's not going to hurt us anymore. Um, so that plateau yeah. is theorized to be a protective mechanism because we can't deal with the toxins being released from the fat. So that's why one of the things I do with people who are trying to lose weight oftentimes is supporting their liver detoxification systems and their yeah. GI tract so that they can hopefully bind and excrete and eliminate these toxins out of their adipose tissue once they're freed back up into the bloodstream. Yeah, I love it. That's why I'm so excited to bring people like you, Nick, here, because I, one of my missions with this podcast is really to put an end on the conception of weight loss being just exercising more, eating less. I, because yeah. I know there is so many factors. It's kind of like a puzzle, you know. There is sleep and stress and inflama inflammation like you're just talking. There is so many things that can be causing your weight gain. And gluten. So let's get into the conversation about gluten. There is a lot of talk about gluten nowadays, on the, especially in the media, gluten-free this and all the kind of jazz, right? Can you first define what is gluten? Gluten is the protein that's found in wheat, barley, and rye, namely. Um, it's really important in the baking world, so in fl things like flour, because it's the glue that holds baked products together and makes them really spongy and, and squishy. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately, it's a pretty large protein and tends to be allergenic in a lot of people, so there's more and more research being done on this. And it seems like every other day on Facebook or Twitter, there's an article that says, yes, gluten sensitivity is real or no, it's not. So I know there's mm -hmm. a lot of confusion out there about what is gluten sensitivity? Does it really exist? And how does that compare to celiac disease? Now, celiac disease or gluten enteropathy was the first poster child of gluten sensitivity. So in celiac disease, you have a couple of factors that come together. Um, there is a gene type that, or two rather, that make you more susceptible to celiac disease. Uh, they're called HLA, DQ2, and DQ8. Um, about 90% of people with celiac disease have one of those HLA genotypes, but mm. about 30 or 40% of the Caucasian population at large has those genotypes. So it's not a very good marker for celiac disease in and of itself because you're going to get a lot of false negatives or rather false positives. Um, so for celiac disease, when you ingest gluten, you have an inflammatory immune response and you actually have an autoimmune attack against the cells of your small intestine. Um, mm -hmm. And that 
is celiac in a nutshell. Now, those people oftentimes will have really severe malabsorption and changes in the small intestine that are so severe that when you do a biopsy, you can see that the little finger-like projections of the small intestine, the villi, are shaved down into little nubs and there's nothing left. Um, So the typical diagnosis for celiac disease will oftentimes encompass checking to see if you have the genotype, but again, about 30 or 40% of the Caucasian population has that. So that's not a great one to do. Um, Then they will oftentimes test you for one of two things, either uh, the antibody against the small intestine. So the antibody that causes that damage, uh, which is called transglutaminase. And the, uh, the other marker that they'll test the blood for is the IgA antigen to uh, alpha gliadin. Now, I guess we'll get to that a little bit later, but the issue is that that misses a lot of people. Um, Even a lot of celiacs don't get caught by that conventional testing. So the ultimate Mm -hmm. way that a lot of celiacs get diagnosed is they will get a a biopsy of the small intestines. Um, Yeah. So my question is, can can we trust those tests or should we go through like an elimination diet is still the gold standard? Yes and no. So for celiacs, if you have a true case of celiac disease, so an autoimmune response to your intestines, then I think those tests are decent. They're not great. There's a lot of celiacs who still get missed and they end up getting run through the Mayo Clinic and and bigger, more famous hospitals to get an appropriate diagnosis. But for celiac disease, that's pretty good. The problem Mm -hmm. is, is that more and more research is saying now that celiacs only make up a small fraction of people who are sensitive to gluten. So if you're getting tested for gluten and your doctor is really only testing you for celiac disease, then there's a pretty high likelihood that you're going to get missed. Um, I normally, in my office, I do two things. Um, Either I have people embark on an elimination diet or we do testing. There is actually laboratory testing to look for for gluten sensitivity now. Um, I'm not sure if it's available in Brazil, but I know it is here in the U.S. Um, no, I don't think it is here. Yeah, so there is that. So for me, I oftentimes advocate testing for it just so that I know people are going to take it seriously and they know once and for all, no, I can't eat this. Um, elimination diets are still considered the gold standard, though, and that's the best way to find out. Now, yeah. I'll give you a caveat on that, though, is they are good, but there's a trick to doing them correctly. So normally for an elimination diet, you let's say we take five foods. So the top five I tend to see are gluten, dairy, soy, corn, and eggs tend to be the top five that people have a reaction to. So let's say we did an elimination and we eliminated all five of those. Normally I coach people and tell them that you really need to cut things out for the better part of four or five months to really- Four or five months? Yeah. To really let your digestive system heal and your villi grow back and your immune system chill out um, to a point where you're going to see much of a difference. I've talked to a lot of people, you know, in the general public who have said, oh, I tried going gluten-free once and it didn't work. And when I ask them mm-hmm. how long, they'll say, oh, a week or two. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, your your gut just doesn't heal that fast. Certainly not without the addition of some supplements to encourage it to heal. 
Um, if you are doing things like L-glutamine and bone broth and probiotics and other things, then mm -hmm. maybe you have a fighting chance of getting it to heal quicker. But otherwise, you know, you're going to need the better part of a couple of months probably if you're doing it with diet alone. So mm, interesting, interesting to hear that because there are some professionals that I respect that they say like around 30 days, it's enough to kind of like bring it back those foods like like you just said, mm -hmm. corn, dairy and gluten, for example. No, hmm. I, I personally don't think so, because ultimately the way that you're going to feel a difference and you're going to truly test the food is you have to let your body heal enough to get back to a baseline of what your gut should be doing normally. And then you need to make it mad and inflame it again. So if your gut is already inflamed still from the previous attack, then you might not see as much of a difference or not as mm -hmm. profound of a difference. Hey guys, what's up? Bruna Gama here, Brazilian Health Net. And let's take a little break from the show because I would like to offer you something. If you go to my website, www.brazilianhealthnut.com and click on the page, Burn Fat Forever, you can go ahead and claim your free consultation with me right now, okay? Or you can just send me an email at brazilianhealthnut at gmail.com. So you can start to lose weight and feel healthier right now, okay? So go ahead and claim your free consultation with me and remember that spots are limited, okay? Now let's get back to the show. Uh, what about gluten sensitivity then? What's the, the main difference in the symptoms? Like how can people differentiate it, those things? And that's the tricky part really, Bruno, is that there are there's a lot of flavors. So for example... I pretty much tell all of my autoimmune patients that if you have an autoimmune disease, no ifs, ands, or buts, you have to cut out gluten because gluten causes a leaky gut, which we can get to a little bit later. And yeah, that gonna is going to perpetuate the autoimmune disease. Um, so for example, if you have rheumatoid arthritis, then a symptom of your gluten intolerance could be the joint pain of your rheumatoid arthritis. If you have psoriasis, it could be your psoriasis flaring back up. Um, and the list goes on and on. In some severe cases where you have neurological manifestations, you know, it could be something like a severe bout of vertigo or tremors or migraines. So mm -hmm. it really depends on the person and their body and where their weakest link is in their chain. You know, if, mm -hmm. if the weakest link in your chain, yeah. so to speak, is your gut, then you're going to get diarrhea. Got you. What about people who have not celiac, they are not celiac and they are not sensitive to gluten? Can they have also benefits from going on to, into a gluten-free diet? I think so. And yeah. now this is going to depend a little bit also. So it, again, in Brazil, it's probably similar to our situation here in the U.S. from the sounds of it. And I think that avoiding gluten or going gluten-free is probably a good idea for just about everybody. Um, the reason being is that now there's research showing that even in people who are not sensitive, quote unquote, to gluten, no matter what, gluten will cause a leaky gut. And leaky gut syndrome is just bad news, no matter how you roll the dice. So, you know, whether you have an autoimmune disease or if you have true sensitivity to gluten or not, I think anybody could benefit from going gluten free. Um, mm -hmm. The trick is to do it right. You know, if you just go to the store and you start buying gluten-free Pop-Tarts instead of normal Pop-Tarts, then 
I don't think you're yeah. doing yourself many favors. But yeah, I want to ask you a little bit about this later on. But before, I want to play the devil's advocate here. And a lot of people, when I talk about gluten, they come and they say, oh, but, you know, bread was in the Bible and we've been eating wheat for thousands and thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So is there any difference between the bread from today, from, let's say, decades ago? Yes and no. So what I would say, well, actually, I guess to answer your question, yes, there is a bit of a difference. Throughout the last 50 or 100 years, we have bred wheat in such a way to make it produce more gluten. And the selective breeding um, has really changed the plant that we see today as opposed to a couple hundred years ago, or even the wheat that your grandmother or great-grandmother would have eaten and made bread with. So the plant itself is different. Now, there is such a thing as GMO wheat, but it's not commercially available in the United States yet. I believe mm. they're working on it and they're thinking of introducing it in a couple of years. But so we can't really, you know, finger point to the GMO issue quite yet directly with wheat. However, I think the bigger piece that people leave out when they make this point is, yes, we've been eating wheat for thousands of years or hundreds of years, and we did just fine with it up until recently. I think the bigger issue is I don't think it's so much the wheat. I think it's us. The human yeah. body is so much different than we ever have been in the existence of our species. Like I said earlier, you know, we were not exposed to flavor retardants and Roundup yeah. and perfumes and colognes and just all these endocrine disruptors and the sheer amount of stress that we face living in the world today to the, you know, the lights, the artificial light, and we don't go outside in the sun and we don't have... I think the quite the same social structure and support that we used to there's there's a lot of emotional and physical stressors on our bodies now that just weren't even thought of a hundred years ago um and I think yeah that's a great point we are so, we are much more fragile nowadays because of mm -hmm. all these com components that you just said that's so yeah. true. I remember I was watching a video I don't know like six months ago and about this guy talking about gluten. And he was like, yeah, but nowadays most people don't have a strong stomach acid. And that's one more subject, yep. you know, we could be talking here for, for a long time just about the stomach acid production and all the benefits and people think it's not really good for you and all that kind of thing, right? So he was like, yeah, for because most people don't have strong stomach acid, so they can they shouldn't have gluten because uh, the gluten part, you know, it's a protein, it's really hard yeah. to digest. So, yeah. Yeah, if you yeah, can't break crazy. it down. What's the right way to do this? thing in terms of kind of like getting off gluten and going to the supermarket and trying to find the foods, right? Because there is some, like you said before, foods that they say it's gluten-free, but still not good for you. So how do you go about that? Do, are you just recommending like going for one food, like one ingredient, like just apple and just potato, just like one in avoid as much as you can the products? Yeah, I think uh, in the words of Michael Pollan, if it came from a, uh, what was it that he said? If if a food used to be a plant, or if it is a plant, eat it. If it was made in a plant, don't eat it, right? Mm. So again, I would not necessarily recommend you seek out the gluten-free breads and the pretzels and the, you know, gluten-free Pop-Tarts. That's what I always like to choose personally, Um you know, if you just substitute all of the junky food you were eating for gluten-free junk food, 
you're still eating junk and I don't think your body's going to heal. So I like to try to get people to embrace going gluten-free for the bigger picture that it represents of we're embarking on this as a health journey and we're going to get healthier. So yes, we're cutting out this one dietary protein and we're going to avoid that. But also by, by cutting out things like pasta and bread and pop tarts, it's freeing us up to learn to try new foods and eat things that are healthy again. So like you said, like potatoes, apples, just meat, you know, Mm -hmm. things that we would have eaten 100, 150 years ago is a good rule of thumb. Um, yeah, another another option. I, I actually just did a little video yesterday about this because when I started on my journey, it was hard for me to give up bread because bread is something that I always, you know, my whole life eating mm-hmm. and it was like a gradual process. And eventually it became habit and I didn't eat bread, but I still liked it, just the flavor and the texture yeah. of bread. What, so what I do nowadays I make my own bread. I just do it with mm-hmm. different ingredients. So yesterday I was eating some bread that I made myself with some coconut flour, almond flour, eggs, and butter, and flax seeds. So those kinds of ingredients. And, and it's kind of like the same flavor almost, to be honest with you. It's mm-hmm. not really a big difference, especially when, once you get into real foods. So yeah. that's another thing I recommend to people. You can still have your bread just make your own or change the ingredients, make with real food. Yeah. And I think another point too, is that if you're making these treats at home, you're much more likely to eat far less of them. You know, if you, if you go out and buy a couple packs of Oreos at the store, then you could just chow down on them from now till doomsday and eat 30 of them a day. And it doesn't matter because you just go to the store and you buy more. But if you had to put your blood, sweat and tears into making, I don't even know, like a, a, bread like a loaf of bread from scratch yeah and it takes hours out of your life to produce that product you're probably not going to eat five servings in one shot you're probably going to have one slice of bread you're going to enjoy it and then savor it and save some for the next day um so i think that making things yourself really changes your eating habits just out of sheer sheer um relevance that you don't want to keep making it over and over again and spend that kind of time making it um yeah 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 besides the the ingredients being awesome for me like the one that i did there is this connection that you just said you know mm-hmm. with our food that we kind of like lost on the yeah. last decades there is you know people don't cook anymore unfortunately no. i was talking i was talking to somebody right before you and one of the questions we really talk like deep was about cooking and how important it is for us to cook and prepare our food if you want to get healthier and lose weight and all yeah. that kind of things. Right? Yeah, it's crazy. And you mentioned before about leaky gut. So let's talk about this subject. It's really important, I think, for people to kind of have like a understanding of what it is. Yeah, leaky gut is huge. And luckily, it's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, there's more and more people talking about it on the internet and otherwise. But mainstream medicine hasn't quite caught on yet. Leaky gut is exactly what it sounds like. So normally the gut lining should be a very tightly regulated system. It lets some things pass through and get to the bloodstream. So vitamins, minerals, glucose, amino acids, good stuff that you want to get in. And it keeps out other things. So bacteria, 
parasites, allergenic large proteins like casein or gluten, um, the endotoxins, the things that the bacteria in our gut make. So it should be this very selective system of this gets to go in, this does not. Um, And it protects us from the outside world. When the gut lining becomes leaky or permeable, as they call it in the research, it starts letting other things in. So it creates kind of this double-edged sword of the gut lining is inflamed and other things get in that shouldn't get in. Um, So being things like gluten or the bacterial endotoxins from our bacteria. Um, And that's bad. But it also creates malabsorption. And it's so inflamed that we can't properly absorb and utilize the things that we should get into our bodies, like vitamins, minerals, amino acids. Um, So it's kind of this weird situation where you get a lot more of the bad stuff coming into your system and not nearly as much of the good stuff as you would Mm -hmm. want. Yeah. So what's the best way to heal a leaky gut? Just in, in summary, there is a lot of things we we can do, right? But what what the things that you see like most effective? Um, first and foremost, you have to figure out why you have a leaky gut. So I could throw all the herbs at you I want, but if you have a leaky gut because you are intolerant to soy and you keep eating soy, it, yeah. it doesn't matter what I do. You're right. just going to have a a gut on fire. So first of all, you have to find out why. And then there's also, you know, if you have a a bacterial overgrowth or SIBO or a parasite or stress, it's just being under a lot of stress will cause leaky gut in and of itself. So Mm -hmm. once you identify why you have a leaky gut and you treat that, say you have a bacterial overgrowth and you treat it with some herbs, that's one piece of the puzzle. And then there's things that you could do to encourage the gut lining to heal, which I think is what you're alluding to. Yeah. Um, yeah. A high dose of L-glutamine is probably what I use most often. And when I say high dose, it's usually somewhere in the ballpark of 30 or 40 grams per day serving. Okay. Okay. So very high dose of L-glutamine, at least for a couple of days or a week. Um, And then there's other herbs that will help too. So things that will coat the GI lining and help them become less inflamed like slippery elm, marshmallow root. Um, those are probably two of the big ones. Aloe, to a certain degree, will help. Um, and you can get these sometimes in combination products that I'll use on people. And then just some of the basics, like vitamin D, probiotics, um, and making sure yeah. that you have all of the vitamins and minerals that your body needs to fully heal. Yep. Avoiding the... the- stressors sometimes Mm -hmm. it's more important than just adding stuff right and once you're avoiding and then you bring those things that you just mentioned about back into our diet then we have the perfect recipe for success yes so question for you cheat day what's your take i personally i do once a week probably have something like with gluten let's say that is not really part of my regular diet during the week but once a week i really don't stress about it i just go and have whatever I want and I feel fine. Mm-hmm. However, of course, I don't I don't recommend everybody. I really work yeah. with people particularly like um, with their situation. So if they're having something like you, we're just talking about, you know, a lot of autoimmune immune problems and inflammatory disease. So of course, we're not going to be doing those things. So how do you handle this with yourself and clients, friends, the subject of cheat days? 
Well, it's funny you ask this because I did one entire blog post on this not that long ago. And I can send it to you and you can link it on your yeah, podcast please. if you'd like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the title was, How Strict Do I Need to Be? Because ultimately, people ask that. They want to know, when can I cheat? When can I give myself a little bit of sanity? Um, and I think it comes down to a couple of things. A, your health. So where are you at? If you come into my office and you have rheumatoid arthritis, fibromyalgia, and SIBO, then there really aren't going to be cheat days in your near future. (laughs) Sorry Mm -hmm. to say, you know, because if you screw up and you have a little bit of gluten or a little bit of something that you can't have, it could potentially set you back months. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of stuff going on, then that isn't going to give you a lot of wiggle room. If you're somebody like yourself who you're young, you're fit, you take otherwise really good care of yourself and, and you know once a week you have a piece of bread at a restaurant and you know it, that it's not going to inflame you and you take good care of yourself, um, then I don't think that's a bad thing. For myself personally, uh, my cheat days tend to be the processed gluten-free junk. So, <laughs> for example, last weekend... Um, my mom was gearing up to go to DC and we were just kind of having a night around the house and hanging out with Jess with my daughter. And we happened to see something on TV uh, where they were making a brownie and she goes, I really want a brownie now. So we keep a couple, you know, of the boxed gluten-free brownies or gluten-free cookie mixes in the pantry for a rainy day. So, you know, we made a boxed gluten-free brownie. Could I tell you all the ingredients in that? No. (laughs) No, I'm sure it was some amalgamation of rice flour and potato starch and tapioca starch. And it wasn't Mm. by any stretch of the imagination healthy. Um, But for me personally, avoiding gluten has to be taken really seriously because I did have some of the markers for celiac disease. And I also have some other autoimmune stuff and gut problems that I keep in check by not eating gluten. And I know the consequences if I do. Um, yeah, so I got yeah, it makes sense. It really just depends you, on the person. On the person, yeah. You you gotta know yourself, and you have to listen to your body and know your goals. Mm-hmm. That's what I always say. You know, do what works for you. That's the most important thing, I believe. So, is there anything else that you'd like to cover related to anything really, like uh, gluten or inflammatory disease? It's fine, but anything else you think it's fine to to share here with people who are trying to lose weight and get healthier on a holistic way? Yeah. So I guess I'll circle back around to elimination diets one more time and tell you a little bit of my story personally doing an elimination diet. Um, And hopefully that could help some people in the future. But years ago, when I started embarking on this functional medicine journey, um, you know, you go to these seminars and these classes and you learn about the evils of gluten and the evils of soy. and, And it makes you a little bit paranoid, I will admit. So I decided by golly, I'm going to do an elimination diet. So I did. I cut out the big, probably six things. I cut out gluten, dairy, soy, corn, eggs, and I believe peanuts. Um, and, and sugar, probably. Yeah, <laughs> sugar and, and, yeah and sugar to a great <laughs> deal. And I cut all those things out and took some supplements and basically did a, a detox protocol on myself and healed my gut a bit. And I did that to a T for about four or five months, like I said, what I usually recommend to people. Um, I cut it out very strictly. Pardon me, hiccup. Um, I cut out everything out really strictly for the better part of four or five months. And I added them back in one at a time 
which is important to do in elimination because you need to know what caused the problem. So I added gluten in one day and then I waited four or five days and I added in dairy and then I added in soy. And I did this for all the six things that I eliminated and I'll be darned. I didn't see any difference whatsoever. And I, Mm. at first I was relieved and then I thought, you know, no, I, I just know that I've got stuff going on that could be linked to gluten sensitivity, if not other things. So that's when I finally bit the bullet and I did some of the Cyrex testing on myself. And it turns out I am not only sensitive to gluten and dairy, but I'm also very sensitive to sesame. Mm. So the problem is I, I am a recovered vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for about 12 years. And uh-huh. during that time frame, I got hooked on sesame in the form of hummus and teeny paste. So when I did my elimination diet, I was still eating a lot of hummus, store-bought, which has tahini paste in it. So I was Mm -hmm. eating sesame a couple times a week and ticking off my gut. So to me personally, when I cut out gluten and dairy and I did not cut out sesame, it didn't help. It didn't help. It didn't make any difference because my gut was still so inflamed and upset. So... After I got the testing done, I redid the elimination. I cut out gluten, dairy, and sesame, healed my gut again. And now I'll tell you, I I see a really profound difference. But sometimes the downside with the elimination diet is that it won't work if you don't cut out everything. So, for example, people who say they tried to go gluten-free, well, maybe you were sensitive to soy. Maybe you were sensitive to dairy. Maybe corn. If you just go gluten-free... I don't think it's a very good shot that you have at really figuring out if you're truly gluten sensitive. I think at minimum, you need to embark on something closer to the paleo diet and eliminate soy and other potentially problematic grains. Um, But then there are cases like me where even if I did paleo, that wouldn't have helped me because I could still eat sesame on paleo. So I joke with people what would have worked ultimately had I done it is if I had ever done autoimmune paleo, which I don't think Mm -hmm. this was even a thing back in the day, but had I done autoimmune paleo that eliminates nuts and seeds and that would have cut out the sesame and made the difference to me. But I also don't need to go to that extreme. You know, I don't need to cut out all nightshades and all nuts and all seeds. I just need to eliminate that one. That one thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. I'm going to have to bring an expert onto the elimination diet. Just talk about this, about the whole show. Yeah. <laughs> Can you have sesame seeds nowadays or no? It's going forever. Um, I haven't tried it a couple of years because the few times that I tried in the last probably six years or so, it was not pretty. I actually, yeah. um, I probably would take my chances at eat gluten before I ever touched a sesame seed again. It was, yeah. it was even. Why did you feel it? Um, when? Or no, I mean, no, like how, how do you feel it when, once you had like this couple of years ago, is that, what's, it's kind of like an allergy reaction almost? Well, what's fascinating is that I, I react differently to the three different foods that I'm sensitive to. Gluten, and I've, I have accidentally had them all before. So gluten, I pretty quickly got gastrointestinal distress and bloating. Um, I got restless leg syndrome, which I hadn't had in a while Prior to that, I got restless leg syndrome that night, and then I got a headache that lasted for the better part of a week, and gastrointestinal bloating and distress for the better part of a week. 
And interestingly, my chronic low back pain that I had had for five years came back again Mm. for about a week until I healed my gut again and really hit it hard with some of my supplements um, and eating right again. Uh, The back pain that I'd had for years and years came roaring back, but that's only with gluten. With dairy, when I accidentally got exposed to some dairy at a restaurant, I was doubled over in pain from gastrointestinal cramping and bloating. Um, But otherwise, no real symptoms. Um, I think I got a little bit stuffy. Sesame almost immediately within an hour sent me sprinting for the bathroom and I had diarrhea for a couple of hours and really intense um, bloating and cramping. So it's crazy that little seed. Oh my God, what can do to <laughs> right? That's crazy. It's bizarre. So yeah. <laughs> Who um, would you imagine that? <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah, I'm too much of a wuss. I haven't had the guts to try any of those foods for a while. So I couldn't tell you if I'm still sensitive to yeah. them, but I think I probably am. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so grateful for having found all this good information early on on my my life, you know, because, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I never had any problems like that. I didn't develop for, you know, because I... I started this when I was young, and yeah. I also have some good genes here too, <laughs> to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Anyway, so last question for you is, people are super motivated now after listening to this interview, but if you have to have just one action step, like uh, one tip to implement right now, what would that be? Eat more real food. Even, more, if, okay. even if you don't cut out gluten, just start transitioning to eating more fruits, vegetables, you know, meats and fats and things that don't have a label. If you mm. could just start making that transition and eat real food again, then I think uh, the rest of it will, a good start. will fall into place. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good start for sure. All right. Uh, Nikki, so where can people find you and what's next for you? What have you been working on right now? Um, well, I guess uh, where you could find me, our office website is infinityholistichealth.com. Um, I also have a second website that's a little bit less active, drnicoledenesa.com, but they both essentially lead to the same stuff. Um, what's next? I had just recently, I moved to North Carolina about a year and a half ago and opened up my practice here in May of 2015. So mm-hmm. right now, just hunkering down and focusing on my my beautiful baby and working yeah. as much as I can. Um, and I'm starting to get into public speaking a little bit more in the spring. I've got a couple of things in the works for doing some speaking engagements. Um, yeah, you definitely should here. do it because that's why I brought here because I know you're really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. All right. Okay. Thank you so much, Nikki, for being here with me. I super appreciate your time and I hope to talk to you soon. It was good talking to you, Bruno. Thanks for listening to the Brazilian Health Nut Show. Go to www.brazilianhealthnut.com for much more information about how to burn fat for the rest of your life. Hasta luego.